0: We'll be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. And while you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in church and for the ones that's come out today. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that we have to, uh, to study and to learn and to grow. Lord, we just pray that you would meet with us here today. I pray that you would... Uh, just apply your word to our hearts, Lord, and, and Lord, use it in our lives, Lord, that we can uh, increase in our, our faith and our walk with you. I just pray that you would help me as I teach, Lord, just guide and direct me uh, in my thoughts and the things that I say. And Lord, I just pray that you be with those who are still on their way out this morning, be with those who are unable to be with us due to work and different things, Lord. And Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for all that you do. We ask you help us, Lord, to be a witness in this place you've put us at. In Jesus' name I pray and amen. Okay, so in the book of Acts, we've been following the growth of the church in the first century and seeing the way that the Lord was working, His Holy Spirit was working through the believers to uh, build His church. The Lord said that He would build His church, and we see that was uh, truly what happened in the first century, and uh, there's been different obstacles they had to overcome, different hurdles in the way. There's been a threat of division. There's been a threat from persecution, all these different things. And the Lord is bringing them through all of it. And I'm thankful for the way that the Lord has brought all these things together to uh, lay out the foundation of the church to get everything started, because the Lord truly knows what he's doing and what he began back then has continued all the way up till today And uh, the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that uh, with that, um, we know that it's going to continue until he returns. And so I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to uh, to reap the benefits and the blessings of all of the efforts that they put out all the way back then. And not just them, but all the ones down throughout the uh, down throughout the centuries. And so I'm thankful for that. But anyway, what we've been looking at in Acts in the past couple of weeks is um, the, the Judaizers, the ones who were uh, teaching that the Gentiles had to become Jews, and that the Gentiles had to uh, keep the law, had to keep all of the, the feasts, the festivals, the dietary restrictions, all of those things in order to either be saved or remain saved. Uh, that was creeping into the church. It was a threat to the church. And it was something that had to be dealt with and dealt with swiftly, because if not, it was going to be a false doctrine that was going to to take root and threaten uh, the very existence of the church. Because we know that we are saved Bye. by <clears throat> we are saved by faith, no. not by our works. And they were trying to all the way at that very beginning. They were trying to bring works in as a uh, as an ingredient in salvation. And so, from the very beginning of Christianity. Man has tried to front-load it, if you will, with works as a necessity for salvation, and they took care of that back then. We've looked at that, but it's something that still persists up to this day. Religions all around this world, different denominations, are still trying to base salvation or the keeping of our salvation on the works that we do on trying to keep to a set of rules, a set of rituals, or uh, some sort of ceremonies or something like that as a basis for our salvation. But we see that that was dealt with all the way back then. We saw where uh, Paul and Barnabas took it to uh, Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders, uh, to get a consensus, if you will, to get some guidance on this, to get it settled uh, before it became a big problem. And they settled it, and it should have been once and for all that the Gentiles weren't required to keep the laws, they weren't required to do any of those things, that they were saved by grace through faith, and uh, that was the end of it. And so what we, what we looked at last week um, is the, the letter that they sent out to the Gentile churches and how they didn't load on them anything, uh, anything difficult. They said, you're, basically they said that you're saved, and you're saved by faith alone, saved by grace, and uh, the only things that we ask of you is these simple things that would be a stumbling block, a hindrance uh, to the unity of the church, abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, uh, from fornication, right? And so if you do these things, you shall do well. And so what we talked about in that is for a new believer, whenever they come to Christ, we don't immediately, or... Well, maybe I shouldn't even say immediately. We don't come to them and say, okay, congratulations, you're saved, now do all of these things. There might be a couple of things that we have to deal with up front if they are living in adultery or fornication. That might be something that we have to uh, approach immediately if they are living an immoral lifestyle in some way. You might have to say, okay, uh, the way that you're living, these things are not um, are not right. It's something that goes against Scripture, and so we need to work on this. But uh, Above and beyond that, we're not coming to them and saying, okay, now that you're a Christian, you do all these things. What you do is uh, you begin the discipleship journey. We talked about that a little bit last week. And what discipleship was meant to be was them learning about Christ through His Word, through fellowship with uh, the church and with other Christians. And as they learn about Christ, as they learn His Word, the Holy Spirit applies it to their heart. He transforms them. He changes them. And through that, they become what God wants them to be, not what we want them to be or what uh, religion wants them to be. God transforms them into what he wants them to be, okay? We went from there and we uh, uh, looked at Paul and Barnabas and their uh, their disagreement, okay? And so there's kind of a comparison here. Or maybe, not a, maybe it's not a comparison. But anyway, there's a lesson for us nonetheless, uh, whenever it came to a doctrinal issue, whenever it came to something in regards to salvation of the believers, uh, they dealt with it immediately. They took care of it right away. They said, this is important. We need to deal with this. We need to work this out. We need to bring it to a, uh, a conclusion. But whenever Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement, what uh, was our disagreement over? Taking Mark along. Okay. So Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul said, no, he abandoned us once. I'm not taking the chance again. And we looked at different things, different reasons why there was a disagreement there. But ultimately, I believe that neither man was wrong. They had two different opinions. They had two different ways of looking at things, but they had good reasons behind it. They were fully convinced they were doing the best they could with the information that they had, and so they didn't come to an agreement, but they chose to part from one another peacefully. They didn't slander one another. They, there wasn't hard feelings and bitterness. They just said, okay, if we can't see eye to eye on this, then for this time, we're going to go separate directions, and they did that, and sometimes there's, there's space for us as Christians to do that. Whenever, uh, whenever we can't come to a, uh, an agreement on something, it doesn't mean that one person has to sway. It doesn't mean that in our pride we demand the other person see it our way or to conform to our way of thinking, or that we lack humility because we won't adopt someone else's point of view, because we can be thoroughly convinced in our own mind we can have uh, good reasons behind it, even biblical reasons behind it, and still see things differently. And so rather than it being a place for contention, rather than it being uh, a hindrance to uh, the cause of Christ, we can just agree to disagree, basically. And that is a mature thing to do. This wasn't a doctrinal issue. It was just a practical day-to-day issue. And Barnabas says, I want to take Mark. Paul says, I don't want to take Mark. And they couldn't come to an agreement on it. And so they come to the conclusion, okay, Barnabas, you take Mark. Paul says, I'll take Silas. And they did it. They continued serving the Lord. They continued uh, being a blessing to the church and uh, discipling other believers and all. And the Lord used even this division, even this disagreement they had, the Lord used it to cause the gospel to go forward and churches to be strengthened. And so in the end, even though it was an uncomfortable situation, even though it may not have been the optimal thing, God still used it, right? Okay, so this week, what we're going to be doing in chapter number 16, we're going to leave Barnabas behind, and Barnabas, actually, we're not leaving him behind, we're just sending him off in a different direction, and he kind of fades off the pages of, of Scripture. It doesn't mean that Barnabas quit, it doesn't mean that he was doing nothing, it's just that Paul is going to be the center of uh, attention for a while, Okay. The first half of Acts, um, Peter was the center. He was kind of the central figure. The focus, whatever the ministry was primarily in Israel, but now that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, the focus is going to be on Paul. And we've been seeing that transition for several chapters. And uh, even through his first missionary journey, it went from... Barnabas being kind of the central figure, the the leader of the ministry there in Antioch. So Paul comes in and he kind of takes over. And even with that, we don't find Barnabas having any hard feelings. But as we come here, uh, Paul's going to be taking his second missionary journey. He's uh, going with Silas. And as he goes along, he picks up other people along the way. And so we'll be looking at that. uh, Acts chapter number 16 and... We will read, I'll go ahead and read down to verse number 11. I don't know that we'll get that far, but we will see. It says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities they delivered them to excuse me, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem, and so were the churches established in the faith, and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly Gathering that the Lord had called us uh, for to preach the gospel unto them, therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. And so, as we look at this passage, we find that uh, Paul is covering a lot of ground. He is he's going a a, a great distance. But the first focus of this chapter, uh, as Paul is going backward, back through where. Him and Barnabas had went on the first journey. We remember he, he left uh, Israel, if you're familiar at all with the, the lay of the land with maps and stuff from back there. He left Israel, uh, went across the Mediterranean a little ways. Uh, there was a little island there that's where uh, Barnabas was from. They stopped off there for a while. They went from there on up into the region around just above the Mediterranean, circled back through the region of Galatia, and then back down to uh, back down to Israel. And so anyway, this time, Paul is going backward in this journey, and he's starting off with the region of Galilee. And then Barnabas is going the opposite way back down to the area that he came from originally. Okay? And so they came to Derby and Leicester. We remember those from our past studies. That's where, um, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. Remember, they, they took him outside. The, first, they wanted to worship him said, uh, the gods have come down to us, right? And so after he forbade them to worship him, the Jews came in, started stirring them up against him. They took him out of the city. They stoned him with stones. They thought that he was dead. And after a little while, he shook the rocks off of himself, stood up, went back to someone's house, stayed the night. And the next day, he departed to the next city. Remember all that, right? And so he is going back to the place where they tried to kill him. And some would say that they actually succeeded in killing him and the, the Lord resurrected him. We don't know for sure. But anyway about it, if you were pelted with rocks until they thought that you were dead, till you were at least in like a, a coma or something like that, and then was able to stand up and go about your business, there was still a miracle either way. Right. People don't recover that quickly. I mean, if you just had a tumble and uh, get a little bit banged up, a little bit bruised, you're not feeling like taking a long journey the next day, right? And so either way, there was a miracle that was right there. But still, Paul is going back to this area where he was mistreated, where he was abused because of his love for the believers. And as he's coming back here, he's actually being uh, rewarded in a way for his efforts and for his faith because whenever he comes back to this area, Maybe he's a little bit nervous because he is a human being, right? Okay. Sometimes we lift Paul up to almost super spiritual level, don't we? Okay. Because of the works that God did through him. But he was a human being. He was just like you and me. He had the same fears, the same concerns, the same uh, same issues that we do. And so there was fear, no doubt, in his mind and his heart. Whenever he's coming back to this area and he's wondering, okay, what's going to happen this time? What am I going to find whenever I come back here? Uh, One of the reasons he's going back through here originally anyway is that he wants to strengthen the, the believers, strengthen the churches throughout that area, right? And so he knows that there are people who have believed. He knows that there are young Christians in that area, and he's wondering what has happened to them since I was here last. Now, think about this for just a minute. This is Paul's first time doing this. Okay, what I mean by this, he's went through, he saw believers saved, he has set up elders in each of these churches and things, and he has left them uh, very young, very um, uh, young in the faith, I mean, uh, very inexperienced, and even the pastors being young in the faith and inexperienced, and he left them there, he left them to the Lord, remember us talking about that? And he went on, moved to the next place, the next place, the next place, ended up in Jerusalem. He ended up in Antioch for a good while. And so now the question is going to be in his mind, did it stick? What happened to them? Am I going to find anything whenever I return? And so that's got to be a question in his mind, what's happened since I left? Because I've left all these very immature believers here. Is God able to take care of his churches? And so as he comes to this area, he finds that there are still churches there, that there are still believers there, and that they are growing in the faith. And whenever we look here in in, uh, Acts chapter number 16, these first few verses, it talks about in verse number two, uh, referring to Timothy, that he was well reported of by the brethren that were in Lystra and Iconium. And so the churches had been meeting together, they had been growing, they had been discipling one another, they had been doing all of these things, and Timothy was growing in the faith. We find that no indication that Paul knew Timothy before this, that there was any kind of a relationship going on. Uh, Paul does say that Timothy was his son in the faith, so I guess maybe uh, he had gotten saved on Paul's first visit, and that was kind of the, the source, the start of this relationship. But the churches were thriving in his absence. And just in what I read through here, he made quick progress through this region. He didn't stay very long at anywhere because uh, basically he stopped in. He saw the church was doing well without him. There was no need for him to stay around. And so he gave them the the decree, the letter from the Jerusalem Council, so that they would be, in a way, uh, uh, vaccinated against false teachings of the the, uh, Judaizers, right? They would know, okay, this has already been settled. And so he leaves the letter behind so that they're not going to be listening to these false teachers. And he proceeds on his way through all of these different places. But coming back to uh, Paul meeting up with Timothy here in Leicester and Derby, I said that this is going to be encouraging to him because the churches are thriving. But not only that, in the very place where they tried to kill him, there's a church that's thriving. And not just a church that's thriving, there is a young man there who is very promising, very promising toward the ministry. He's interested in the things of God. He's interested in coming alongside Paul. And honestly, that's a miracle in and of itself. If you watch this man be stoned and left for dead, you're not going to be saying, hey, I want to follow him. I want to do what he's doing. Right? That's not going to be your immediate reaction. If if you witness that happening, you're going to say, okay, uh, mental note, I don't want to Follow that guy around because that will happen to me, right? But instead, Timothy says, I get what he's doing. I'm interested in what he's doing. And so, as he's following Paul around, as he's uh, interested in hearing all of the stories, as he is soaking up uh, all that Paul is teaching like a sponge, Paul has a heart for this man. He wants to see him growing in the faith. He wants to see the Lord use him. And there is Something that takes place is not necessarily directly recorded in Scripture, but it's something that we can see coming together. And it's this this partnering that takes place. Okay, uh, He has a desire to go. Everyone around says, hey, that seems like a smart fit. Timothy has been growing. He is faithful. He is solid. I think that he would be an asset to your ministry. And Paul looks at Timothy and he says, I think he would be as well. And he realizes that there is a hole that's left behind after Mark's departure, right? Because what would Mark's position have been with their uh, with their ministry team? What do you think he was doing? Anyone have any suggestions? No. Hey, so you got Paul and Barnabas at first, right? Mark's coming along. He's the apprentice, he's the helper. He's not necessarily going to be the one that's going to be preaching. He's not necessarily going to be the, the main one that's discipling in things. But he's coming along behind them and he is soaking up the things that he is seeing, the things that he is hearing. But he is a blessing to Paul and Barnabas during that time because he could be he could be doing all the grunt work for lack of better terms, right? He would be going ahead. He'd be setting things up. He would be doing a lot of the running. He'd be filling in the gaps. He would be a blessing to their ministry team, taking some of the burden of the everyday functions off of them so that they could minister, right? And so, anyway, Mark was more than likely doing those things. Now, Timothy's going to come alongside and do the things that Mark used to do. And so, Paul and Silas gets the benefit of having a strong young man to come along with them and help carry some of the burdens. And Timothy gets the benefit of sitting at the feet of Paul and Silas and learning about the Lord from them and learning ministry from them. Okay? And so this is kind of the way that it was working. And what I want to bring out this this passage here uh, with these ministry dynamics, if you will, is that each one of these men that we're looking at have their own uh, their own personalities they have uh, their own strengths they have their own weaknesses they have different things that they can do. we look at the Apostle Paul he has a very strong personality. He is type A personality he is a uh, he is a great leader he is, Able to get things done. He's able to delegate. He is not easily intimidated. He's able to go toe to toe with any accuser or any adversary. But not everyone is Apostle Paul. What I find as I read through, especially through the book of Acts, Paul tends to be very intimidating to me. Because there's almost this idea that Paul is the example, that Paul is the way that it's supposed to be done. Okay? And those of you who've been around for a little while know I'm not a Paul, okay? I'm not the type A personality. I'm not the, uh, the one that is a confident, out-front, go-to leader kind of guy. I, that's never been me. And I find it comforting as I'm looking at this that there is space for all different personality types. There is different ways that people can be plugged in uh, without being an Apostle Paul, that while Paul had his place, he had his ministry, and God still needs people like Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is not the only ones that God uses. You have a man such as Barnabas. He seems to be a much more soft touch. He was the the one that was always encouraging. He was the one that was giving people a second chance. He was the one that was knocking the rough edges off of Apostle Paul. Okay, Because you can imagine Paul would be maybe a little bit harsh, a little bit brash and different things. And Barnabas balanced him out. Right. And so both of them were very, uh, very needed parts of that ministry. And God used them mightily as a team. Whenever Barnabas left the scene, uh, we have Silas that comes in. We know less about Silas, right? What do we know about him? Anyone know anything about Silas? I'm asking hard questions this morning. No one's got answers. The few things that we see Silas doing, we see him being a <coughs> being a very highly respected uh, part of the Jerusalem church whenever the council comes up there. And Silas is one of the ones that is sent with the delegation down to Antioch. Remember that? They said he is someone who is a pillar. He is strong. He is. Uh, he is reliable, he is faithful, and so we can send him down there as a representative of Jerusalem in Antioch. Whenever he got down to Antioch, he was preaching, he was exhorting the brethren, right? We don't have any of his messages recorded. We don't know what the fruits of his efforts were, but he was encouraging the brethren there. As he goes along with Paul, he is constantly his right-hand man. He's constantly his number two, right? He's not He's not intimidated by Paul. He's not upset that he's not the main guy. He's uh, satisfied being the sidekick, right? And then even with that, we continue going forward. Uh, whenever they're in Philippi, which is just a chapter or so ahead, when they're in Philippi, they're locked in the jail together. Remember that? And they're singing the praises of God, Paul and Silas, both singing the praises of God even whenever they are uh, under pr- imprisonment. And so he was a very solid, very steady, very dependable believer there coming in alongside Paul, balancing him out, keeping him going, helping him along the way, right? Then we come to Timothy. We, I guess we could talk about Mark that already left, right? He was the unstable one. He was still a little bit green. He needed some more maturing and whatnot, but he came around at the end. But when we come to Timothy, what do we know about Timothy? We know a lot more about him. Anyone want to help me out? His mother and grandmother were believers, so he heard it often from childhood. Mm hmm. Probably a quiet man. Okay. Paul Gerson in his letters, not be so timid. hmm. Okay. You know, one of the things that Paul says, let no man despise thy youth, right? So he was a young man. He was prone to timidity, maybe insecurity, right? He was would have been one of the quiet ones. He would have been not forceful like Paul, right? But he was studying, and he was dependable because what we find Paul continuing to, to do after he disciples timothy for a long time after timothy comes alongside of him as his apprentice and learns from apostle paul and he grows in his knowledge and his understanding of scriptures and he's rooted and grounded in the faith uh paul comes into the the village to the city to the town whatever paul comes in he preaches he sees people saved he gives them a very light foundation in the faith right and then he turns it over to timothy See, Paul is the evangelist. He's the one that goes, he wins the souls. Timothy is the one that disciples, nurtures, and grows them. And we see that happening repeatedly, that Paul starts a church, hands it over to Timothy, and says, Okay, I got them to the Lord, now you teach him about them. Right? And so Timothy is put in that position to where he is able to shepherd them. He's able to care for them. And so he's really got much more of a shepherd's heart for these people and he's able to come into even at times he sent to uh, Corinth whenever there is division there is strife and it's not Paul that comes in uh, like a whirlwind to set things straight and to beat up one of them a little bit he sends Timothy in there to bring reconciliation to bring uh, to bring unity back to those believers and so Timothy takes this place and is a central part as he's an integral part to Paul's ministry there, because what would happen if Paul didn't have Timothy to come in after him and to get things established, to get a good foundation laid, to set things in order after Paul wins a bunch of people to the Lord? We don't find Paul being the type to stay in one place for very long, for him to spend a lot of time actually building on the foundation that he lays. He's got men that come in behind him that do that, and they complement one another. And the reason I'm bringing all of this out is that it takes all sorts in the work of God. It takes all different people, all different temperaments, all different personalities and things for God's work to go on. And God's never intended for all of us to be identical, for all of us to be just alike. He has always intended for us to have a multitude of talents, abilities, skills, and all these differences that complement one another to get his work done. If the church was made entirely of Apostle Paul, how do you think things would go? What do you think on that? I want to unlock the story. It'd be a little bit intense, wouldn't it? Everyone was Paul. Uh, has anyone heard the uh, the old expression, too many chiefs and not enough Indians? Some of you? Okay. You've probably worked in places that were that way. Everybody wanted to be the boss. No one wanted to be the, the worker. Everyone thought they were in charge. And it wouldn't work out too well, right? What I find is, I'm looking through the, the New Testament, I find uh, a few Pauls and a bunch of Barnabas's and Silas's and Timothys and even Marks going along the way. Now, the attention usually comes to the ones like Paul, and that's what we find throughout the New Testament, right? But the other guys tend to, to, tend to be satisfied to be working in the shadows, being in the places of less prominence. Uh, they don't get near as much spotlight. They don't get as much attention. They don't get as much ink on the paper, but it would all fall apart if it wasn't for them right? Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One of the uh, illustrations that's used for the church oftentimes is a body, right? And Paul uses this as an illustration in First Corinthians chapter 12, down in verse number 12. It says, "For "As the body is one and hath many members, And all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, uh, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, and I think that, that'd that be kind of weird, wouldn't it? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if we, or excuse me, and if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they, they many members, but yet one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. And so as we see in that passage, specifically in verse number 18, it says that God's put it all together the way that it pleased him. God in his wisdom and his knowledge formed a body, and he knew how many arms we needed, he knew how many fingers, how many toes, how many eyes, how many ears. He knew the way that he wanted it all put together, and it works pretty well, doesn't it? The human body is, a, is an engineering marvel, if you will and it works well. It performs the task that he has set for it to do. Same thing happens within the body of Christ. God has determined and put together, as it pleases him, all of these different members into one body so that they work together and work well. Even within a local church, God is able to bring together the right ingredients, the right people to do the work that he has in the area that he has it. So he's able to do these things. And so as I'm looking at all of this, uh, there is room, as I said, for all talents, all temperaments in the Lord's work, and we can't make a Paul out of a Silas, we can't make a Paul out of a Timothy, and if we try, if we start trying to turn a Timothy into a Paul, we're going to have problems, and the reason I say this is, just as I was mentioning there a minute ago, I'm not a Paul, and if I try to be a Paul, I'm going to have issues, Right? I'm going to constantly, if nothing else, I'm going to constantly be discouraged because I'm not functioning as I have put expectations on myself, right? I'm trying to be something I'm not. Uh, just like if you uh, expect a fish to climb a tree, it's not going to do that. It's not the way it was made. God has given us different talents, different temperaments. So as we look at Timothy here, the apprentice, we talked about several of the things that he was uh was like some of the even negative things. He was uh, young. He was um, prone to discouragement or insecurity. But in what we see in the scripture, he ends up being one of Paul's greatest companions. He ends up being his right-hand man. He ends up being the one that does so much of the needed work in the New Testament. We've got two letters that was written to him, right? And so um, we also find a... Relationship between Paul and Timothy, not just their differences in talents and temperaments, but we see a relationship here. Because I believe every Paul needs a Timothy, and every Timothy needs a Paul. Okay, what I mean by that is that we are to be pouring into one another. We talked last week about discipleship. We talked about learning from one another, growing from one another. And in the Bible, we have this idea of the older ones ministering to the younger ones, the younger ones learning from the older ones. I've got a couple references written down here, but I'm forgetting which one's which. Okay, Titus chapter number two. Titus is another one that joins the ministry later on and becomes a, uh, a similar role to what Timothy was. Titus chapter two, verse number one, it says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, and patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, uh, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort you to be so, sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uh, uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, that cannot be contemned. So as we look at this passage in Titus, is Paul <laughs> encouraging Titus, right? And he is telling him, be an example and exhort the old men to likewise be an example to the young men, the older women being an example to the young women, and the older ones teaching the younger ones, the younger ones coming and learning behind the older ones. And this is how the church was supposed to function. We are to be learning how to live life and live the Christian life from those ahead of us, those who have experiences that we don't, those who have been where we haven't. And for us, who have been at it a little bit longer to be pouring into the lives of the ones that's coming behind us. It was never intended for us to be as uh, individualistic, isolated, separated from one another, kind of just trying to figure it out on our own. The church was meant to be interconnected, encouraging one another, edifying one another, building up one another, and we find this relationship going on between Paul and Timothy. Now, I, I mentioned there a while ago that Paul was benefiting from Timothy's presence, and Timothy was benefiting from Paul's presence. It wasn't a one-way thing. But if we just use our imagination for a little bit, in this relationship between Paul and Timothy, in this relationship between uh, someone who is uh, a mentor and someone who is being mentored, what are some important qualities that each must possess? for someone to be a mentor like Paul was, for someone to teach those who uh, are coming up behind them, what kind of of qualities should they possess? Okay. That's one of the, the biggest ones. They need to be patient. You ever try to learn from someone who was impatient? Okay. What else? And we should have had more coffee first. What would be important in someone who is mentoring someone younger? What do they need? Knowledge. They need knowledge. What? Gentleness. Gentleness. Okay. Very good. Okay good character, humility. Those would all be good things, right? Even that passage that we looked at in Titus chapter two, it went through how the old men were to present themselves, right? So in a way, I kind of gave you the answer earlier. I just didn't tell you that, right? But think about it here. There are plenty of young people out there now who are looking for some sort of leadership, they're looking for someone to help them, someone to guide them, right? Uh, and there is a, a famine, if you will, a dearth of that happening today, especially in the world which we live in where there is uh, broken homes and uh, there is parents missing from the home and things like that. There is a void in those relationships where God had intended for the children to be learning in the home from the parents and learn the things of life from them. But it's not just within the home, It's, as I said, it's within the church as well. And so there is a need for people who are understanding, people who are experienced, people who are patient, who can be humble. Here's a big one, approachable, right? That are willing to to invest in the lives of those who are struggling behind them. Okay, now let's turn it around the other way. For someone to be mentored, for them to learn, for them to be discipled, what is necessary? What are some qualities that they need to have? Be teachable. That's one of the biggest ones, right? To be teachable. We come back to humility again, right? And so someone who already thinks that they know it all, isn't that like the uh, the stereotype for uh, kids and teenagers? They know it all. They, they're not willing to listen. They're not teachable. And so if someone's unwilling to be taught, doesn't matter how much patience the older guy has or the older lady has. If the younger one is not teachable, then there's no way you can invest in them, right? There needs to be humility. There needs to be a teachableness. There needs to be a desire, right? There needs to be a level of respect there. And we see that going on, I don't want to hover here too long, but we see that going on with Paul and Timothy, that Timothy is eager to learn, he is willing to submit to Paul, he is able to come there and uh, humble himself, put himself under Paul, so that Paul is able to pour into his life, and Paul has patience with Timothy. We see that even through his letters that he writes to Timothy. As Timothy is struggling, as he's having trouble, as Paul is afraid that maybe he's uh, pulling back from the minister because he's uh, insecure, because he's becoming discouraged. Paul is continuing it patiently to nudge him along, to prod him along, to stir him up, to continue onward, right? And this is the way that it should be working in our churches today, in our lives as believers. We should be finding people that we can encourage, those that we can pour into, and those that can pour into us. And I don't believe there's a place for us to stop being taught and being under someone ahead of us or we should always have someone before and someone behind. Does that make sense? Someone pouring into us and someone we're pouring into. Right? And that should be what we're desiring to do. We grow by that and we see it working here in the book of Acts. Now, I know I've been on this for just a little while, but I want to go ahead and move forward on this. Does anyone else have anything to add or any, anything with this idea of uh, the differences in our personalities, our temperaments and being able to pour into one another? Nothing. Okay. Well, I want to look at something here in um, in this passage as well that kind of goes off in a different direction. Okay. Um, whenever we're looking at this in, uh, verse number three, it says him would Paul have to go forth with him. So Paul wanted him to join him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as we look at this passage, uh, what has immediately happened before this was the Jerusalem council, right? What was the Jerusalem council about again? Circumcision, that was one of the things. Do they have to be circumcised and keep the law? And so now as Paul has Timothy to come along with him, Timothy has been uh, raised up by a Jewish mother and grandmother, but his father was a Greek. And whenever it says that he was a Greek, that means that he didn't become a Jew. It wasn't that he was a Greek that had converted to Judaism, that he would have been considered a Jew. But he was a Greek. He was still outside of the the Jewish faith. And so with this, as Timothy was born, as he was raised up outside of Israel, and with a, a Gentile father, he hadn't went through the Jewish ritual circumcision. Though his parents were, or though his mom and his grandmother were devout Jews, his dad wasn't. So he didn't go through this ritual. And as he is getting ready to go on the road with Paul, where is Paul's first port of call always? Anytime that he went anywhere, where was the first place he went? Was it? He went to the synagogue. He went amongst the Jews. And it says that the, the Jews of that quarter knew that Timothy's father was Greek. We find later on with Titus that they spy out his liberty. In other words, they are checking to see if he has conformed to this ritual. Okay? That's, that's extremely nosy. Okay. That's invasive. That's invasion of privacy, right? But they would do that. And what I'm getting at with this is as Paul is constantly going, interacting with the Jews first, he's bringing along a half Jew, a half Gentile in Timothy. Then the Jews are going to be offended by this man who was born and raised as a Jew, but had rejected Judaism, and it was going to become a stumbling block, a hindrance to the gospel, okay? So what we find is that Paul and Timothy, and I don't believe that Paul forced Timothy into this, but Paul and Timothy decided for the cause of Christ, for the sake of effectiveness of our ministry, this is something that we could go ahead and subject you to so that we can be more effective. So Paul and Timothy, they're not doing this because Timothy had to do it, not doing it because God required it, but they are doing this so as not to be a stumbling block. They're doing this so as not to cause offense. They're doing this so that they can be more effective in reaching fellow Jews, right? And so it's interesting to me, it's a lesson for us, because Especially today, we like to look at uh, our rights, our freedoms, our our abilities that we can have, okay? We don't like the idea of doing anything because of other people. We want to be able to, to express our freedom to its fullest, right? Especially with me coming from America. Americans are definitely that way. Not so much here, maybe. But what Paul and... Paul and Timothy are doing. They're looking at this and they're evaluating what is going to be most beneficial to other people. They're thinking of others before themselves. You think Timothy was just like, yeah, set me up for this? I want to, I want to have this done to me. It wouldn't have been something pleasant. It wouldn't have been something nice for him. But he says, I'm willing to go through this unpleasant thing if it means that other people are more likely to get saved if it's going to make me more effective in reaching other people, if it's going to take a stumbling block out from between me and them. And so that's why they submit to this, why, why Timothy submits to this, because of their desire for others to be saved, for them to be other-minded. Uh, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians. There's a few, few passages I want to look here. And hopefully you're following along with me, or understanding at least what I'm what I'm trying to bring forth here. For, so First Corinthians chapter number nine is where we'll start out at verse number nineteen. Yeah, First Corinthians nine nineteen. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews; to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law; to them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law unto God, but under the law, uh, under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as a weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. So this is Paul's attitude, his ministry philosophy. He says, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not going to, to, to jump into sin. I'm not going to do anything that is wrong, but I'm going to do the best that I can to to be able to relate to those that I'm trying to reach, to take away any kind of hindrances, anything that would keep them uh, away from Christ, keep them from uh, believing in what I'm preaching. So he he's going to look at it. He could dress in all of his Jewish garb. He could have all of those things on and come into a Gentile area, and the Gentiles may reject him because he is a Jew, right? But then another thing that often came up as he first went into the Jewish areas is he knew that the dietary restrictions, the dietary laws, had been done away with, right? So he could have eaten things that were considered unclean to the Jews, But if the Jews saw him as a Jew eating things that was considered unclean, what would the Jews have done? They would have rejected him everything that he taught, right? And so Paul is evaluating everything based on what is going to make him most effective in being a witness and being a testimony for the cause of Christ. And this is what was going on with Paul and Timothy here. He said, the Jews are going to see Timothy as being a Jew and being uncircumcised as a stumbling block. They're not going to listen to us. They're not going to entertain what we have to say because of this. And Timothy says, well, it doesn't mean one thing either way to me. It's just a procedure that's uncomfortable that I have to go through. But if it makes me more acceptable to the Jews, then I'm all for it. It has no bearing on my salvation or my eternity whatsoever, but it may have a bearing on theirs so I will subject myself to it. Okay? We can go over to First um, Corinthians chapter number 10, just a page over. Verse number 23. It says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. So this is still getting into his, his ministry philosophy here. He says, there's lots of things that I'm able to do, but how does it affect my ability to be a testimony, to be a witness for Christ? Uh, how is it going to have an effect on those who are around me? And so he chooses to do some things or not do some things based on those that are around him. And it says that he's not seeking his own. He's seeking the good of others, right? This is highlighted over in Romans chapter 14, verse number 13. And this comes back to the thing with, with meat. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace And things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Uh, So as we look at that passage, he is using meat as an example, and he says, I am going to elevate the gospel, the cause of Christ to being of supreme importance. It's more important than me being able to indulge in some uh, fleshly pleasures. Not sins, but eating of meat, eating of these different things. And he says, if eating this is going to be a hindrance to my ministry, if it's going to cause them to stumble, then I'm not going to eat meat. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And so bringing all of this together, we talked about Uh, pouring into one another, looking out for one another, uh, our lives having an effect on one another. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, whenever Cain slew Abel and God came and looked for Abel and he asked Cain, he says, where is your brother? What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? And that's a a very famous statement from scripture, everybody lost or saved, it seems like, knows that passage, and they usually throw it out as if it is something spiritual or something good, but it's coming from the lips of Cain that just murdered his brother, right? And so it tells us a lot about the spirituality of that statement, because as we go through the scriptures, we find that we are indeed our brother's keeper that there is this idea of how important our relationship with fellow believers is, as well as our relationship with the lost, and living our lives intentionally so that we may benefit others. Living our lives intentionally to be a blessing to others, to build up, to edify others, and to be a witness and a testimony to those who don't know Christ, so that by knowing us, they can come to know Him. Okay, And so in looking at Timothy with this matter of circumcision, Timothy says, if it's going to make us more effective, if it's going to help us in being a witness, then I'll partake of it. I'll do it. Now, I've got to say on the opposite end of this, okay, to kind of counterbalance this. Does this mean that we have to constantly live in fear of what the brethren think? No, it doesn't mean that we have to curtail everything just because someone says I'm offended. That's kind of like the the culture that we're in today, isn't it? Offense trumps everything. But that's not what we find. We find balancing it out. We talked about Titus earlier, right? And in Galatians chapter two and verse three, Mm -hmm. as Paul's writing to this region, the same region that he's in right now, he says that he didn't feel like he needed to have Titus circumcised, because Titus was a Gentile. And what message would that have sent to the Gentiles if he required Titus to be circumcised? Say circumcised. Yeah, so it, it undoes what the Jerusalem Council did, right? And so to balance it out, he says, okay, we're going to uh, do things that may be uncomfortable or inconvenient so that we may be more effective in winning people, but we aren't going to bow to the whim of the religious guys just to please them if it's going to be a hindrance to others, right? And so we make these decisions in life based upon biblical principles, based on our effectiveness in being a light and being a witness. But there is always balance in scripture, right? So Timothy, there was good reasons for him to go ahead and subject himself to this. But for Titus, He didn't do it because it would cause more harm than it would good, right? But all the way through this, the main thing I want us to get from this passage is that our lives are meant to affect one another. The way that we live and the people who we listen to and the people that we pour into is going to have a much larger impact on the world that we're in than what we understand. Our lives that God has given us are for the purpose of making an impact on this world for the cause of Christ. Okay? Whenever he refers to us as the body of Christ, whenever he says that we are his members, we are what he works through in this world today. And so the way that we live, our attitude toward others, our attitude toward the things of this life are going to have the largest impact for the cause of Christ. And so I guess the, the, the final thing to bring out here is the world's philosophy is that we are to focus on self, right? Do what makes you feel good. Do what you want to do. Do what you enjoy. And who cares what anybody else thinks? Isn't that the world's philosophy? And we find that that's completely the opposite of what we see in Scripture. Jesus is our ultimate example, and we find that he was willing to be the servant of all, that he was willing to come down from the glories of heaven, to come down to this earth, and subject himself to being confined to a human body, to be confined to all of these uh, discomforts, so that he had no place to lay his head. He slept under the stars. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what pain was like, no doubt, all the walking he did, he got blisters, he got sick, he got all those different things, and then ultimately he was rejected by people, he was abused by people, and he was crucified, gave his life, and was buried, rose again the third. All these things that Jesus did, why did he do all of that? For us. For God so loved the world, right? And so as we look at this as Christians, if we could get our, our attention on this and instead of on ourselves, instead of what we want, and instead of being inward-minded, instead of being self, uh, self-absorbed, self see that we are here to minister, to serve. We are here to be a blessing. We are here to give and to receive, to grow, to witness, to bring people to Christ, and bring them up in Christ, and it's not mechanical, it's not ceremonial, it's not uh, not these kind of. But it's organic. It is us living life together. Us, as I said, pouring into one another, receiving one another, cons- uh, considering one another, all throughout our lives, so that we can build up the body of Christ, right. So does anyone have any questions, any comments on what we've looked at this morning? Nothing at all? Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a short. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for your word, Lord. And We just pray, ask you that you would uh, help us to uh, meditate on this for just a little while, think on these things. Help us, Lord, to uh, uh, look for someone to pour into us, to look for someone to pour into. Lord, help us to always be aware of uh, the others that are around us and live our lives for the, the cause of Christ, to benefit, to bless, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, in we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.